Are you curious about how you might have a more fulfilling work life? Well, you're not alone. In fact, the numbers show us that many of us want more fulfilling work lives. I'm Susan Mikriadon, your host. And as a finance director, ops director and leadership coach, who has lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences and perspectives. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the people side of work life and explore ways to let your uniqueness shine through by sharing insights, stories, strategies and techniques to inspire your work life. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Jenny Ashmore. Jenny, you're so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Fantastic. So I'm going to start a little left field this morning. We're going to kick off with a question about the influence or maybe the similarities between business and sports and the psychology that goes behind high performance, Jenny. Maybe this is something you can tell us about. I am so pleased to talk about it because it is my passion. Having come from uh, both a business career in sales and marketing for all I started out in science, and also having been a GB age group triathlete and a coach for endurance events like Ironman triathlon and marathons and so on, I really do see where the two come together. And I think there's um, some profound things that we can learn about goals, about how we work through the process, um, because one of the things that you do in sport is that you break things down into process goals more than outcome goals, actually, because on the day of a big race, you can't actually influence who else turns up, what kind of race they have, but you can absolutely influence how you turn up and what kind of race you have and how all of your preparation lands on the day. And I think many of those things can also be transferred across into the workplace. Cool. And that's from an individual perspective. But what about a team perspective then? Because you don't want people just focusing on individual goals, I guess, then if you're part of a team. Exactly. And this is when it gets really cool, because obviously deep within us is that social need to be a part of a team. And the challenge around getting to a high performance team is some of the things that are about that social togetherness and cohesion. Actually, we have to play with and find ways to make it safe to talk about what stretch and discomfort looks like, because actually high performance doesn't come out of everybody being naturally within their comfort zone and so on. And so that there's so much interesting work and some of our teams, whether it be hockey, whether it be rugby, whether it be football, have done some phenomenal work around that. And particularly around both the functions of what we need to do to get to high performance, but also around what creates the psychological safety for people um, to rock up and, and show up. And if I can just tell a a little story. Obviously, we're coming into Tour de France season uh, now, which probably most people don't really get, like these 
guys in Lycra and cycling around France for a month. Um, but one of the really interesting things is in cycling, there's this thing called pain face. And we see it when they got those really ridiculous mountain passes and they grimace. The really interesting bit is when we get into the uh, performance aspect of it, that grimacing actually reduces performance because it shuts down their ability to breathe. It also, interestingly, creates all sorts of uh, chemicals in their body hormonally that actually aren't so helpful for getting up the mountain. So why do cyclists do pain face? And what they believe now, having gone deep into it, is the dynamic of a Tour de France team is all of the team bury themselves for the leader. And the leader then has to do that last hard climb, usually on their own, you know, head to head. And we think back to the many famous climbs of, of yesteryear where leaders have looked each other deep in the eye and have, uh, have challenged each other to the duel up that final climb. And at times, obviously, the body just shuts down and people can't go any further or not, at least at the rate that they want to. And they come second. And the sense of having let the team down is so deep and profound. So pain face is actually about... I want the team to know that I gave it everything. So when I fail, they don't feel that I failed them. So interestingly, people are already rehearsing failure of what am I going to tell the team when I don't win? How am I going to articulate to them that in spite of them burying themselves? And so they do pain face. And it's one of the really interesting things. And it made me think back across business times of when have I done pain face and actually diminished my own performance because of fear of letting the team down. And I think it's a really interesting structure that I can think back to many times when I personally have done it or have observed other people doing it. Yeah, that's fascinating. There was a couple of things I thought about. One is, is it subconscious and can you override it by forcing a smile and get yourself up that hill? And the other thing is, actually the pain face in a meeting sometimes I was thinking comes from more frustration than letting anyone down from being let down <laughs> it's so interesting in in running there are techniques called association and dissociation and and they each have their benefits so association is when you cut out all of the extraneous noise around you and focus really relentlessly on your technique um, and what you're trying to do. And obviously the benefits of that are that you execute brilliantly, but your brain is fully in your body and, and living it. Uh, dissociation is the exact opposite. You're lying on a beautiful beach and completely not thinking about the fact that your legs feel like they want to drop off. Um, and so Paula Radcliffe famously would talk about the fact that, that the last six miles or 10 kilometers every marathon is agonizingly painful, even for Paula Radcliffe, hurrah. And so she would run the first 20 miles associatively and then when the pain got really bad, she'd run the last ones dissociatively. Interestingly, other people run differently. So they run dissociatively and relaxed in the early stages. And then when it gets hard, they associate because that's when your form's most likely to reduce. So I think the, the kind of reality is it's, it's important to know techniques and to know when to use them. And I think that's the parallel in business as well, yeah, is we need to know ourselves of actually is pulling that grimace in a meeting helpful because it indicates actually guys this is not okay we we don't behave like this as a team one of our team standards is we don't let each other down like we've let each other down today so let's have a conversation about that I think that's a helpful use of, <laughs> of the face in the meeting if it's just I'm really frustrated uh, and I'm not actually controlling my emotions well to get to the outcome that we all want as a team that's probably less helpful and so I think it's useful to think through what's the outcome that we want 
Yeah. And also it's recognizing that you're pulling that face. That comes first, I think, because it might not be until someone else points it out to you that you realized that you were outwardly displaying how you felt. Yeah, and I mean, I think the honest truth is we are embodied at so many levels and it's really difficult to hold on to something and and hide it, isn't it? And arguably, probably isn't helpful. So I think the bit that that is helpful is to really work on the stories that we tell ourselves. And recently I've been doing a lot of work with people who live with long-term chronic pain. And one of the things that's really interesting is how do we unpack our realities? Because if we really think about reality, reality is kind of self-constructed, isn't it? It's like, you know, some cultures used cowrie shells for the equivalent of money. We happen to use like little bits of, of what was paper and is now plastic. It is a very constructed reality and we construct even more dimensions on that reality and we tell ourselves stories about success and all these things and I think they're also reinforced by media and and I think one of the challenges is one of the classic stories that media tells so easily is the battle story of the two sides fighting and, and and it's always a fight and there's a winner and a loser and I think one of the challenges in when you live with a long-term condition like pain is thinking of it constantly as a fight is overwhelming and exhausting because unfortunately this is not a fight that you're going to win so you're always going to be on the losing side so finding a different story to tell yourself that is empowering and enables you to come to it in a different way and so one of the ones that we've been working with is the hero's journey of that there will absolutely be some very low points but there can also be some high points and some mini wins on the way. That piece for people living with long-term conditions gives that sense of growth and journey and the fact that even on a day when you have a loss, as it were, or something that doesn't go perfectly, you can also have something that goes really well and is worth celebrating. Mm. Absolutely. And that's really interesting what you say about the stories we tell ourselves, because a couple of weeks ago, And one of the conversations I was having on the podcast was about how if you're treating a person, don't just treat their knee or their their arm, treat the whole person. And then that means actually understanding all the stories that people bring, which brings me to another person who talked about work is one facet of our life. But when we go to work, we bring all the other facets with us. So there's a whole story behind the person at work as well. And that gives you a different way of looking at people in the workplace. I think that's right. And from that, you can construct bigger stories. So um, with Commonwealth Games, which obviously is coming in 2022, and I'm one of the non-execs, we've been doing some really interesting work about Uh, how teams come together and obviously in that environment it's a multi-sport environment so you've got everything from table tennis to track cycling uh, squash to swimming badminton to beach volleyball so you've got a combination of, of small teams and big teams and individual events all coming together as England to compete against all of the other Commonwealth nations and within that we've been really exploring what does that mean and I've been inspired by Owen Eastwood's book which is about belonging and he talks about his Kiwi heritage and what that means in terms of togetherness and his place if you like and having a sense of of belonging 
is is very deep and actually when in business we can create that sense for people that that they belong in a powerful way and that sense of kinsmanship it, it's very powerful and and it takes a lot and I think businesses often struggle with how do you do that and and I think there have been some really clumsy things in the past that are, I think it's where the kind of the drunken office party came from is the lowering of inhibitions with alcohol was a classic way to, to get people to bond but it's really not very inclusive yeah <laughs> I mean, there are people who religiously absolutely don't drink. There are people who really don't want to stay late into the evening and don't want the hangover in the morning and all of those things. So I think it's important to work out what are the the tools and environments that help people to have those deeper, more vulnerable conversations that create kinsmanship in that powerful way. And obviously, one of the other classic ones is to put people out of their comfort zone physically uh, and that's where, if you like, the old outward bound kind of 1980s approach was. Again, I'm I'm not sure that's really the answer. I mean, much as I would be the first to say uh, physicality is massively important and, and really useful and facing our fears is, is interesting and, and hopefully constructive if done in the right way. I'm not sure that's entirely the right one either. So I think finding ways across multiple different contexts to help people open up about things that they probably don't even admit to themselves, let alone want to admit in front of other people, because it is about sharing that vulnerability that actually creates that powerful sense of belonging. Absolutely. And you used a word a few times since we started talking and about safety and, and being safe and psychological safety. I mean, that's what as a human being, it's our most important need to feel safe. So the only way you're going to open up or be vulnerable or even start to question things is when you feel safe, safe in your own skin, safe in a room. And actually getting a group and the dynamics correct takes time. And perhaps the drunken office party or the team building are brilliant as a short term. But then how do you maintain that back in the workplace and that's where I think these things fall down often is their short-term approaches as opposed to a long-term strategy. I think that's right and I think also there are some quite tough conversations if, if I think back to my hockey playing days there were really important pre-season conversations where we came together as a team and where we agreed the standards yeah? and not everyone likes to be on the pitch, on the dot of eight in order to start training. But it's really ineffective if two or three members of the team don't turn up to training or, or don't turn up on time. And so whilst it's it's really important to recognise that everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses and, and preferred approaches, there have got to be some common team standards. Otherwise, the whole thing unravels really quickly. And I think that's quite a difficult conversation and requires a lot of maturity to facilitate and to to work through the kind of the compromises because in in any team environment you absolutely want to recognize the strength that makes one person a brilliant goalkeeper and another person a brilliant striker but there are also certain team standards which is we will be on the pitch at eight in the kit ready to train that's that's one of our standards (laughs) Absolutely. And it's a norm. And uh, yeah, they're really important for everyone to know what they can push and what they can't, what's acceptable and what isn't. 
You're not going to break that one. And if you do, there are consequences. This is so fascinating because we're talking about hockey, cycling, Commonwealth Games. And you mentioned that you're a non-exec director of the Commonwealth Games. So how does this translate into a boardroom, Jenny? Yes, I mean, I've been lucky enough to be in the boardroom now for many different organisations from financial services, private equity, charity and sport. And, and I think what's fascinating is there are absolutely core similarities and things that you have to do. And um, back to standards, many of those are written into legislative code quite correctly. And then some some are different. And I think that's been really useful to understand. And so obviously around the the Commonwealth Games table, there's always a conversation about performance because it is fundamentally about performance. There's also always a conversation about welfare, as you'd expect, uh, athlete welfare, but also everybody uh, who's involved. And there are also some pretty crunchy business questions. And if we look at the moment, obviously sport is one of those sectors that's that's really been affected by the the lack of crowds. And so we're going to see how that unlocks and together with the creative industries, have probably been at the forefront of some of those those conversations at crowd level obviously participation is another piece that we hope always flows out of high performance sport i think the reality is there are some other barriers that sometimes stop people from getting to participation and, and together with sport england that would be one of their key pieces that they work on and, and obviously as a marketer and somebody who's worked on behavioral change for uh, decades that bit really fascinates me and uh, things like park run and so on that have got you know, millions of people out there is uh, is a brilliant initiative. It is. I mean, it's fantastic. And I think they're starting back up again soon, the park. Yes, one. yes. Assuming the current lockdown release programme progresses, they have, have a, a date to start in England. That's one element, I guess, of the boardroom. But the other one is running an effective meeting. And a board of directors is a team. So how do you get the team to perform in the best interests of the organization in the most high performing way. Yes. And I think it's so interesting because when you recruit a board, you are deliberately looking for people who are going to come at things from very different angles. So unlike executive recruitment, where at some level you're looking to norm and streamline a team to something that's going to be Uh, a highly effective driving machine against the objectives of the organisation. The role of the non-exec part of the board, frankly, is to take a much broader, wider view and um, come at things from very different perspectives. And, And so I think the art form of facilitating great meetings, when you've deliberately brought together that level of diversity of of thought and approach and uh, context and to give topics long enough to breathe that you can explore some of that because it's often the things that you you kind of glimpse out of the corner of your eye would be the analogy that I use that that are actually the most important ones it's it's not normally the ones that are front and center and really obvious it's the ones that just float in peripheral vision that are worth teasing and playing with to understand is that really important? And if so, is it a risk that we need to manage or an opportunity that we could explore? And if so, what kind of time frame and in what kind of way? And I think that piece is super interesting. So yes, I do, I do think chairing a board is probably one of the most difficult tasks. The 
diversity comes to mind there because and coming at it from such a different perspective and trying to cover all the angles with people from all walks of life which is fantastic how how do you manage the contribution of everyone in a meeting and make sure that everyone is heard or that they use their voice I think it starts from planning and there have been some new uh, tech tools that have been coming in which I think enable better planning and tracking of where you spend your time because much like athletic training you'd lay out a plan of, of what you think you need to do and and I think within a boardroom that requires really thinking about times when you might have much more open exploratory sessions which classically a strategy day uh, and you might choose to do that a couple of times a year and, and come back to that as well as some much more focused, tight governance sessions where you're going to really check through the, the standards and, and the adherence, if you like. And so breaking those apart, flagging that they're different, bringing a different sense to the room. And so generally people tend to do strategy days in different locations for exactly that kind of reason. And we'll obviously plan the timing and the agenda very differently. I think the challenges in the kind of the normal run of the meetings we all have a tendency to norm back to a standard pattern. I think at some level, humans are just very pattern driven. And that's why you know, when I set training programs, we'll normally only stick to, to a cycle for a maximum of four to six weeks because the body norms to that. And then you need to switch it up and change it up. And I think there's a need likewise in, in the boardroom to have those moments. And classically, you do that with effectiveness reviews and, and use that as a time to to change it up. I think the bit that's even more interesting is how can you do that in more real time? And one of the boards I sat in have this, uh, this concept of the observer on the balcony. And so they ask one member of the board in parallel with participating in the meeting to think of themselves as an observer on the balcony, watching the meeting at a procedural and um, interactive level and then to comment at the end. And so leaving 10 or 15 minutes at the end for that person then to lead what did they see and observe across the meeting and then use that to then open up the floor to everybody and say, how can we be more effective as a board in our objective of, of building this organisation, sustaining this organisation into the future in a, a powerful and successful way? And I think that's really helpful because I think, if you like, it's a bit like the meta position in coaching, isn't it? Where we kind of look in on a situation rather than being in the situation and it can open up some, some really powerful pieces. So I think there are kind of different cycles there are different feedback mechanisms but it requires constant focus and I don't know that you ever get it right maybe that's the art of balance isn't it it's like you you constantly kind of wiggle a bit <laughs> also is there any such thing as right in a way it, it's it's what's right there and then and works as long as it's working and effective and even if it changes yeah it's the balance I suppose because as I'm doing it I'm balancing on the screen to do that observer role Jenny the balcony role I mean you you require a level of psychological safety in that room to be able to come back especially if you're going to come and point out something that perhaps someone didn't realize about themselves or a point that needs improvement does it get tense? Yeah, I think in line with anything that people really care about, there are tense moments. And I think actually teams are built on how tense moments are handled, I think is the reality. And so I, I would always say to people, 
never shy away from a tense moment because to me that's the mark of an underperforming team always embrace it but really think about how you're going to embrace it and think about how are we going to look back at this moment in a week in a month in a year and how actually do we make the story that we tell about how we work under pressure something that we are proud of and is part of what makes us a resilient a high performing, interesting, fun place to be. Because I think even in tough moments, there can be moments of humor, fun, and, and actually moments of intense pride. If I look back at some of the toughest bits of my career, you know, where we had to go through rounds of redundancies or where we had to go back to the banks and ask for more money, or in one instance where the company even got uh, put into receivership, doing that well is actually really, really important. And I think those are the moments where you really show who you really are, the values that you embody, the quality with which you do your work. Because actually, on a sunny day when everything's going fine, most of us can look good, yeah? It's, it's on that kind of wet Friday where we're at the end of our tether and we're kind of crawling our way through the mud how do we show up on that day? That's that's when we really work out who we are as a leader. Oh, I love that. And I absolutely love what you said, that teams are built on how tense moments are handled. And, you know, I think a lot of people and, you know, a lot of us, I mean, myself included over the years, and I, I've definitely improved on this, but would try to avoid having these tense moments and I think people spend a lot of time going out of their way so that the tense moments don't arise in a meeting or if they do to shut them down and there's so much more value in going through them in weathering that storm that's right and in in sport there's this concept that actually you underperform if you don't create a certain level of stress so the day that you kind of stand on the start line and feel absolutely calm and and on is a day probably you're going to have a terrible race because you're just not up for it enough. Now, obviously, you can tip over into distress where stress has become a, an absolute inhibitor. But it it's a question of building enough stress that we step up. And, and we talk about those those kind of words, don't we, in our language of stepping up, you know, feeling feeling the heart pumping and, and being ready to go for it. Absolutely. And understanding what's going on in your body and that, you know, it is trying to keep you safe. But as long as you know you can handle something, which we all can, makes a difference. And you talked about redundancies and those conversations and and performance conversations sometimes are firing people when it comes to it. They are stressful and tense. But I always say that if you're not feeling that, you're not human you're not actually thinking of the person that you're facing as well and you you need to be in touch with everything that's going on inside you to really show up properly yeah I think that's so important and and the test for me always is 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 my mind and my heart and my guts lined up that this is the right direction and I think what's interesting about that at a physiological level is one of the most important nerves in the system, the vagus nerve, actually connects all of those things together and is, is very profoundly linked to your physiology, actually, as well as that piece. And yet we would absolutely say, oh, my heart's not in it, or my gut feel is this, or 
I think this, but I don't feel it. And so I think to me, we've we've got that sense of embodiment within us. Uh, and to me, learning to listen to all of those things and learning to take a pause when we feel that they're not in alignment in order to explore that a bit more and work out how we do that. And, and I think it can be super useful in a very tense moment to do that. Guys, let's just all take a breath here. Um, breathing is very powerful. In fact, it's one of the most powerful ways to communicate with the vagus nerve. Let's take a breath and, and just work this through a bit sequentially, unpack it a bit, explore it, because we need to get to a stage where we're all feeling that alignment across all of those different things. And the, I think the thing about the brain is we we really don't know how about 96% of it works, but it's really powerful. And so the the human ability to pattern detect, to have intuitions, if we think about when we stand in a crowded room, we kind of know, even in a room of a couple of hundred people, when two people in the corner are talking about us and looking at us, we intuitively know that. And that's back to our kind of primeval defense mechanism of, oh my goodness, I could get attacked at any moment. So as you say, that kind of safety mechanism is deep within us. Uh, we have no idea how it works, right? It's not logical that we can hear their conversation amongst 200, but somehow deep within that 96% of the brain, we don't understand it's working on that kind of stuff. And so that's why to me, getting that alignment is powerful because there's loads of stuff we can't understand, but can really help us. Oh, that's brilliant. I love it. Thank you. And we hear about introverts and extroverts. We hear about the loudest person in the room, the the women versus men. I mean, there's so many different dynamics in a group. What's it like, Jenny, when you do have a diverse group like that and getting everyone to contribute to the best of their ability without being shut down by the loudest person in the room or whatever? I think if you're working with the same team over time, it's really worth doing some awareness tools. And there are so many good ones, aren't there? But I, I think it's only through being able to have that conversation one-to-one of, you do know that you extrovert your thinking a lot, right? <laughs> and that some other people do all that logic in their head and get to really good answers that never quite get any airtime in the room. And so finding on a one-to-one basis the ability to recognize that behavior and to then explain why at times you won't call on that person uh, until the very end in order that they force themselves to sit with their thoughts for a little while. Or likewise, for some of the people who do come to brilliant answers, say, look, I feel like you've got lots of great answers and they're not coming into the room. So I would like to call on you by name. I don't want you to feel hugely pressurized by that, but I feel like we're missing out if we don't get that. So I'm going to regularly ask you, and if you don't have anything to say, it's really fine to say, oh, actually, I, I agree with what's been going on in the previous conversation, or actually, I don't have anything to add right now. And, and those are great responses. So I think it's back to uh, the safety of everybody being able to show up and say, here's what's going on for me, and to recognise that they are just one person in the room and that many different styles can be helpful. But I, I think that that takes a certain level of confidence from everybody in the room to get to the stage of acknowledging that they might get their piece curtailed <laughs> in order to fit into the time or that they might at times be called on when they don't feel entirely comfortable to say something mm -hmm. and I guess I mean you know you've signed up for it it's your job <laughs> so in some respects it is about well how do we get the best out of people and that as you said I think is the the art of proper facilitation or chairing a board it is an art 
Yeah, and I think it does a little bit go back to stories as well, is we can quickly construct a story of, oh, that person's out to put me in a bad light, or you know, here's another example of. And I think it's really important to kind of step back from those stories, because we all tell them, by the way, every single person in the world tells these stories, uh, to then go, hmm, actually, it was a difficult meeting today, and it was clear that the room was not at all aligned. And so it just fell that way today. And it's really unlikely to fall that way next time. Or I'm going to proactively have a conversation to make sure it doesn't fall that way next time. And so I think keeping going back to check our stories with fact and try out alternate narratives is a really useful mental tool for us because otherwise we we construct realities that just might not be there. Yeah, and we can often excuse ourselves when we might not excuse someone else. So, you know, oh, they were so quiet today. They didn't say anything. It must be because blah, blah, blah. Whereas another day we might not say anything, but think, well, actually, I just don't feel like it today. Yes, and many people will have equally self-deprecating or or even self-attacking stories of, oh my goodness, I'm such a failure. I just didn't get that on the table. I've let myself down. I've let the team down. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's that's a really big story out of something that, to your point, like this week it was you, last week it was someone else. It's no big deal. That's the ebb and flow of life. And, and I think just recently I've been coaching a couple of people and they've gone through stellar growth for a few months. And, and I've actually said to them, I'd really recommend we don't do any coaching sessions for a month or two, just because if you constantly get in your head that you're going to grow at this speed, you are going to burn out. Uh, it's just impossible to keep working this hard, learning this fast and not take a break. And I was saying, if you're an athlete, I would be saying, right, brilliant. We're going to consolidate. We're going to hold. We're going to put all of that into the bank and then we'll go again. And I, and I think it's really important to use that in a business sense as well, because otherwise people start to set themselves unbelievably unfair things because they're like but I've done it look I've done it for four months it's like yes and you've done it at the expense of many other things and so now's the time just to rebalance get those other things in in place and then you'll be ready to do another four month stint of, of that stellar growth again yeah it's that whole peak too soon kind of thing isn't it yeah absolutely wow and you you said ebb and flow which remind me of give and take or give and get, which I know you say, <laughs> I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but it is one of your phrases when it comes to, to life and to networking. So maybe you'd explain briefly, Jenny, the secret behind give and get. Well, it's built on a belief around reciprocity, which is that kind of powerful relationships are reciprocal relationships. And, and I guess right back to some of those thoughts of the ancient code of togetherness. One of the things that fascinated me about anthropologists was um, that one of the first examples that they discovered that they really believed that humans were coming together and collaborating uh, was when they found somebody who'd got a, a healed femur, break of their femur in their thigh. Yeah? And so they're like, okay, this person broke their thigh, probably in a hunt or, or whatever, which must have been a vulnerable situation. And yet they healed. So the chances are that somebody carried them back to the cave. Somebody nurtured them for the months that it takes for such a serious bone to heal when they probably couldn't move at all. So they probably lay on the ground um, and somebody fed them and looked after them. And so what lies behind that, if you like, is a sense of uh, belonging. But it comes from a reciprocity. It comes from a belief 
that it was that person who had to be looked after. But if it had been the other way around, that person would have done it for them. And this is why I think in terms of storytelling, the importance, particularly for introverts, to extrovert who they are in some of the most important stories of this is who I am and, and how my life experiences bring me to be me. And this is why I'm here. Really profoundly important because they build that belief around reciprocity, which is deep at, at the heart of belonging. And so my, my belief system, and, and uh, <laughs> hey, I may be alone in it, but uh, <laughs> is that long and enduring partnerships and winning approaches to life and society and fixing some of our global issues actually come from a give and a get. And, and that if one party is only out to get, and likewise, if, if some people are, are in that reciprocal role of only giving, I don't believe that those are powerful and enduring relationships. And, and so I'm always looking for the mutuality, if you like, of, of the give and the get, because I believe it can always be found. It, it, it's just kind of core in, in how I believe life is. Mm, and it's nice. And it's not that you're out to get something when you give something. It's that it kind of naturally what goes around comes around, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I guess it's it's there in many things, isn't it? That's the sense of karma is that you kind of you put some things out there and in the long term, the universe will, will reward it. So I, I think it is about different cycles. Yeah. Ah, very nice. And I think a non-exec role is something a lot of people think about pursuing, Jenny. And if there's people listening to this and they're thinking about, well, is it for me? Is it not for me? What would you say to them or advise them to think about and how to approach it? Yeah, I mean, the nature of being non-exec is is you are not a part of the core. I mean, that's why you're non-executive. And so I, I would say to people, if, if you love being in the thick of the action, if you love being the person who has all of the detail, and if you love being there you know, with the team 100% of the time, then do that and that's called an executive job <laughs> and they can be brilliant and inspiring and fun and and I think if you want to be a non-exec you need to really look at what is it that you're going to bring uh, to the board table both in terms of the depth of skill and, and how that fits with what the organization's going through but also in the breadth and we've talked a bit about some of how you show up and and some of those pieces and I think if you don't have a nurturing coaching advisory piece within you then you're probably not going to show up with the breadth of, of skills that that you you need to actually because whilst there are obviously a lot of set pieces and meetings and so on which don't look very nurturing there are also a lot of one-to-one -one and coaching and, and supporting and bringing people through the organization and and I think to be a good non-exec you you need to do that part as well because you are there for the long-term success of the organization through governance yes through strategy yes but mainly through the people fab i love that and I, I suppose it's coming more to the fore but those skills are often undervalued and underestimated so i love the way you summed that up yeah i hope that at an individual level we value them because if I think back over my career and the people who I hold in hugely high esteem they have been those people they haven't necessarily been the people who could stand on a stage and thrill a thousand people or the people who would charge into that difficult situation and 
you know, leave the body strewn <laughs> to all sides and so on. So the classical definitions of strong, powerful leaders, they're, they're not the people who I look back across my career and think, wow, I'm so glad I worked for those people. They're, they're the ones who took the time uh, to build a team, to nurture the individuals who work for them and, and to make us all come together into something that was more powerful than the sum of the parts. Fab. Jenny, how does somebody connect with you if they'd like to explore this further? Uh, LinkedIn's probably the most accessible way. Yeah, just drop me a message on LinkedIn and always happy to have a chat and explore ideas because I, I, I do believe that there's a lot that we've all yet to learn and I'm really enjoying my learning journey and always thrilled to be a part of somebody else's. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate that. And it was I just love bringing sport into business. And I think it's the first time I've managed to do that in a conversation. So thank you so much for that today. Thank you. It's been a thrill to be here. Goodbye now. Bye. Imagine if every day you enjoy work, express yourself fully and exceed expectations. I believe we're all entitled to have this and that the future of work life will be changed by those who strive for and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and wider organisation. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with someone you know who is curious like you.